Hello and welcome to the Practical Leadership Podcast, where I interview great leaders and try to extract their wisdom and experience for you to learn from and hopefully avoid making their mistakes. Check out practical-leadership.academy because you want to help your new managers succeed with hybrid or remote working. Andrew Davis, thank you very much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Paul. So your background is a company founder. Um, that's IDEO, IDEO um, B2B personalization platform, then went to Optimizely, went to EpiServer. I remember EpiServer, wonderful bunch of guys. Mm-hmm. That big SaaS, hairy big SaaS business thing, you're whale hunting in there. You uh, exited that, rolled that up, then joined Paddle at the beginning of this year as a CMO mm-hmm. and went through a phenomenal acquisition there, $200 million acquisition. I even made a movie of it. That was brilliant. I loved that. You're also a coach at Sales Impact Academy, mm-hmm. uh, angel investor, Ned. So you've been around a while. I was on your session with uh, the Sales Impact Academy at ABM. You're a very good coach. Very good. I really enjoyed that. What was your first people management experience? So if we go right back to um, to being Stone a Age, yeah, Stone Age, Stone Age, yeah, yeah, pretty much feels like that now. Um, my kids would certainly say so. Um, I won a scholarship with Deloitte Consulting. Actually, it was with Arthur Anderson, and then became Deloitte Consulting given their trials. And um, so I went in and and at seventeen started working for them, and definitely didn't have any people management experience there. I was uh, very much on the lowest rung of the ladder. But it um, part of that experience really gave me fantastic opportunity to expand my horizons. And I went to university, went to Warwick University um, after that gap year, with really one goal, which was to start my own business so that I'd have options and wouldn't have to say yes as my only co- you know, only course to Deloitte after I'd graduated. And so my first people management was, I guess, technically some of those startups we tried at university, where we had to employ our first developer um, or get someone else on board as, a, as as our first member of staff, although they certainly weren't official members of staff. It was all very um, either voluntary or on a whim and a prayer, and they pretty much all failed. Um, but that was probably my very first um, entrance into people management. And then, yes, at IDEO, when we hired our, our, first, uh, our first team members um, after building that business on our own, myself and Ed as co-founders for a little bit, that would be kind of the first time we had to employ someone properly in our team so how would they look back on that experience if you had went back to talk to those team members um probably extremely haphazard um i can remember actually griff james griffin who was our our cto for a long time um i'm actually a seed seed investor in his new company he's a co-founder of uh, an accounting tech business now and uh, i remember we hired him as our first ever developer in in the first startup uh, at university by putting, I think we went into the physics department and put, you know, a printed note up on the wall saying developers needed, come and you know, call this number or email this Hotmail account. Um, that's how long ago it was. And uh, yeah, certainly very haphazard, no real process or thinking behind it other than, you know, let's create some demand before we've got the supply. Once we've got some demand, let's find find some people to fulfill the demand, uh, which in that instance was was building some stuff uh, software-wise. Um, yeah, haphazard would probably be the word. I, fair enough. I think everybody has me personally. I think I've left behind a trail of destruction, which I always, I continually apologize for. Everybody that I was a manager of in the early days, I'm so sorry. 
You know, this is penance. It's absolute penance. Maybe this is what this is. This is penance for me. Actually, just from a business building point of view, we were talking about this before we joined here about the whole you know, the startup thing. Having the nouse to go off and create demand before you build something and then try and sell it, that's a pretty big thing in itself. Evidently, that's where you've ended up. You've ended up with the whole marketing side. That's a, that's a fairly smart move to make. What happened with it? So I think that was just you know, one of our one of our first pieces of insight as we were at university was that um that whole that whole kind of fallacy of build it and they will come was something yeah. I think we grappled with a couple of times and never wanted to grapple with again. And therefore it was kind of a principle that we had that actually market testing was going to be really important. Mm-hmm. Um and you know to that point i can remember you know the first business was a, a top end women's wear fashion label uh, not tech at all and uh, and we actually you know we did kind of get a bunch of designs and got them sampled so there was some some work up front but our first you know trade buyer their deposit funded the manufacture of that collection because we wanted to make sure we had you know someone actually approving this from a commercial perspective before um we or anyone else funded the production um so yeah i think it was just it's it, you know i guess it's evolved much more now into the discipline of user feedback and market testing and at that point was us just not wanting to waste 6 or 12 months of our life building something that no one wanted using the deposit to actually fund the production twas ever thus you know, when you actually when you talk to the ones that do make something out of it, is you're 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 selling smoke and mirrors and powerpoints. You know, absolutely, it'll be wonderful eventually. That's cracking. When you were going back to the early days of hiring these people, what advice would you give as I don't know first aid to a new manager, somebody who's in that position today? just having been dumped into looking after a team of people or having to hire someone, what would you say to them? Where do they start? What do they do? What's Andrew's big thing? Um, well, I think in these situations, it's almost certainly not one big thing, not one silver bullet. Nah. Um, but I do think it is a recognition that people management is a skill in itself that he's developing. And probably part of why it was very haphazard for me in the early days is I didn't recognize that. It was something that was kind of a means to an end rather than a skill I had to go up and develop myself and could learn about and read about and listen to other people about. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's it's understanding that it's a skill you've got to build. Um, some people you know, have a natural style or might be naturally more inclined towards it. Um, but there's definitely some very learn, learned and teachable practices that you can, you can build there. I think that um, it's important as part of that journey to learn what kind of manager you are. There's no point following everyone else's advice uh, to some kind of cookie cutter you know, standard, um, because I think the best managers are you know, managers who are authentic to themselves um, and and uh, fly in their areas of strengths um, and shore up their areas of weaknesses. Um, and I guess one thing that in several roles to me has been really important, and I wish I'd, wish I'd done it earlier, was to, you know, in a very lightweight way, document my operating manual, how you can operate Andrew as a direct report. Um, so how I like to receive information, when I like to be clued in on something, um, you know, different channels and, and, and you know, ways I like to receive information or frequency um, and, and how I can be best used to unblock obstacles in that person's workplace or to help them achieve their goals. And so that's something that I, that I think I wish I'd done a bit earlier to process and reflect myself on how I thought I could best work with those around me. What would you put into that sort of template? What else would, how would you structure that? Because I've heard this like a few times from different people. So it's been saying it's quite a powerful way of going into a new role and saying, hello, I'm Andrew. 
here's the here's the manual. You know, this is how you program the video recorder. Okay, I'm showing my age here. This is how you program the the telebox. Yeah, I, I, I'm much less complicated than a video recorder, fortunately. <laughs> um, I, I think um, insert coffee. <laughs> yeah, completely. <laughs> um, for me. It's about identifying. So let's talk about information first. Mm. Um, so I like to be CC'd on lots of things, just so I've got general kind of ambient awareness of what's going on. I don't get too burdened by lots of information flow, um, but I'm very hands-off about needing to jump in on someone else's project as long as I've got general awareness of what's going on. So that's one thing on information flow. Uh, and then I articulate um, for different members of staff how how I like to receive information. So for me, it's it's WhatsApp if it's the most urgent thing or a call. Um, and then, you know, there's a kind of degrading set of tools, you know, Slack and email, et cetera, uh, standing one-to-ones if it's less urgent. Um, I think it's also interesting to to, to lay out the things that really help you fly and the things that really kind of get your goat, the things that really frustrate you. So, you know, as an example of, of the negative, um, I, you know, people who gravitate towards or exacerbate drama, I find quite difficult to, to, to work with. Mm-hmm. Um, people who, even when there's smooth sailing, have to create a drama and friction in order to get something going um, or get themselves going. I find that really tiring. Um, and a phrase I use lots with my team when we're going through um, you know, challenges or, or pro- bridging projects is that I want them to be pouring water on fire, not petrol. And uh, and so that's something that's important to know about me because sometimes I'll be working with someone you know who stimulates their own momentum by creating drama when it's not even there, um, whether that's social drama or workplace drama or, or time pressure drama. So that should be a little example of of the kind of insight I think it's really helpful for us to share with each other so that we can get the best out of each other. Um, and and then you know on the positive as well, you know what what things really you know bring me to life. Well, it's having some basic awareness of of, of a project and being brought in pretty early to. Give give my thoughts um, into the initiation of that. And then, you know, then I feel completely happy to let that person run because they've heard me. And whether they follow my advice or not is actually not the point. I don't mind if they don't at all, but at least I've been heard as part of that project. Um, so yeah, th- those are a couple of things I would include within it. Mm. I think something else I've heard as well is how you handle time. Mm-hmm. Because it's actually, these are the sort of things that are the, the important in any any exec, any manager, is the number one thing they have to manage is, well, number two, one and one, two is their, their time and therefore their energy. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that five minutes late is on time, for example? Are you yeah. one minute late is late? Personally, I'm, you know, if you're later than five minutes early, you're kind of late, but that's just me because I, I, I do struggle with that as well. And then even then you get cross, cross-cultural contexts having a team full of Brazilians and people. They have this wonderful thing. I used to work in Brazil. They have this thing called Tempo Britânico. I'm sure my Brazilian friends will, will correct my pronunciation. British time. Tempo okay. Britânico means actually on time. Because if you have a meeting at 11, it's like, eh, 11-ish. It's kind of 11 o'clock. Mm-hmm. But at 11 o'clock, because there's a bus or something, it's Tempo Britânico. Got to meet at that time. So having that, maybe having that into into your your operating manual is quite an idea as well. And yeah, do, do you have this documented? Do you have it documented? Um, so when I first came into this role, I did, and it was an update on a couple of previous roles I'd had when I built it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's something a bit, a bit of a living template. I don't think I've distributed it recently to perhaps some of the new joiners that I probably should do. So this is a good reminder. There you to go. Do that. Um, so yeah, I think I, I, I do have a, a structure that I've got on on a, on a note um, that I've pulled out and, and edited over over different roles. Uh-huh. And what sort of feedback have you had from people who've had this? Do, do they then in turn do that? Is it something that cascades or is it a, a one-off? 
Um, yeah, often that's it's been cascading that then they've taken that template and done it for their team as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and you know, I think you know, the utility of tools like this really depend on you know the flux in the organization, how new everybody is, or whether they've worked with each other before, mm-hmm. how fast pace you're having to drive and run, uh, whether there is existing friction that you're trying to kind of remediate, or whether actually things are fine and you're just trying to protect for the future. Um, and so, yeah, I think I think they can be super helpful when you've got lots of new team members, you're working in lots of flux, and perhaps there are some issues that you want to build some principles in order to shore up against. Mm. And if you're working remotely as well, if you're working in a highly distributed team, as most of us are these days, yep. cross time zones, cross, cross locations, cultures. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. You try and bring everybody in and give, give everybody some guidelines, some, some, uh, some tram, tram lines to work with it. Oh, okay. Was there a particular mistake or an event, perhaps, that led you to lead most, to learn most from? Um, I, I don't know if it's just me. I think I learned most from mistakes and hard times. Always. Um, I remember one, one specific occasion um, that I felt was pretty defining in in Idio's marketing team culture, um, which was there, there was a a webinar i think it was with forrester it was probably something we'd paid a lot of money to kind of produce and get a speaker on um and i was the other speaker and i can remember sitting in the in our in our london office and uh, a few people from my marketing team it's a very small team at that point were in the room um a- across the way kind of doing all the back office production making sure all the ops were working and people were set up and in on time and the messaging during the the webinar in terms of the chat and the housekeeping was all going okay and the lead follow-up was all working um, and it felt like one of those days where everything went wrong. Everything had friction. You know, we were late in getting it sorted. The slides didn't work. The the vendor we were using for the for the webinar didn't didn't really work very well. And there were no Q and A. And it, it, it was just it was a bit of a mess. And I don't know if I, I I'm generally very balanced. I'm not easily flustered. But I can remember walking into the room next door at the after the webinar, which was near the end of the day, and being frustrated with the team, being openly frustrated and, um, you know, not shouting and not, you know, showing my anger. Um, but they they would have been very clear that I was displeased with how that had gone. And I can remember after work, um, Munya, who's a fantastic CMO in London and uh, worked with me um, on that team for, for many years, um, pulled me aside and said, Andrew, I think you could have done that in a better way. The team were really under pressure. This was the issues they were facing in order to try and get to that moment um, and what they were battling with. Um, and I think you need to apologize. And uh, I can remember, you know, listening, reflecting, and then pinging them all a note and then going in the next day and apologizing and saying how these are the things that I hadn't borne in mind um, And I, as I was walking back into the room with them really frustrated and uh, that I would in the future. And I think, you know, for me, that was... Uh, a good moment of modeling the kind of culture that I want to be part of where people can challenge me and, you know, give feedback to me really directly. Um, and that we're really responsive to the mistakes each other make, whether it's myself or someone else on the team. So that'll be a, um, yeah, certainly a memorable example of uh, a mistake that I think was rectified for the, for the team's benefit. And the learning, the ones you learn from are always the most expensive. Of course. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> expense in money or expense in ego. Yeah, yeah. Uh, humility or whatever it is that comes in terms of payment is always. Yeah, a- a- absolutely. And I think, you know, there've, there's been a huge number of very expensive mistakes um, when it comes to people management over, over the last few years. And I think one of the other things that I find really 
um, interesting as a concept that I've developed over the last few years is that often when it comes to empowerment, it's about leaseholds, not freehold when it's within the team. Um, you you want to give someone the ownership of of this project to give them complete right to go and run and fly, um, as well as maybe fail in a few ways on it as well and learn. Um, but at the end of the day, it's it's a leasehold project, it's not a freehold project, because you still have to own, you know, as a leader of the team, I'm the point person for that whole entire function or that entire business. And I still own the land it's built on. Um, and I'm fundamentally responsible. And I can't devolve the responsibility away from myself to a member of my team or to an external consultant. That's often the most expensive mistake, um, thinking that someone else can be brought in and wave a magic wand. Um, but you know, although I'm you know delegating ownership of a project, um, it is for a time and is with some guardrails around it. And fundamentally, I'm the person who's responsible for for that delivery or for for the business moving forwards. Your neck is always in the line. That's it. Yeah. And the the thing is, of course, that if it is a success, then the leaseholder, the tenant, has painted the house beautifully and it's theirs. Yeah. However, if it all goes to hell then you have to take it back and redecorate and it's all your fault. Exactly. So there's an analogy there. We're probably stretching too far. I don't even think it's going to, one that's going to work outside of England. Even my <laughs> Scottish friends, they're not going, what the hell is a leasehold? Well, is this archaic feudal version of ownership of property? So, all right, then. <laughs> Fair enough. I'll, I'll, I'll let you explain the analogy. I'll just stick to the headlines. No, no we'll, still, we'll keep to the headlines. We'll keep to that. What are you working on at the moment then, Andrew? What's going on? So, um, like many businesses, we operate on a, on a calendar year, and so we're deep in planning for 2023. And you know, as many people within software um, will be uh, acknowledging, and across the wider economy, it's all about sustainability. It's sustainable growth. We need growth, but we need to not compromise our runway and our EBITDA um, and our route to break even um, as a business. And so it's looking really carefully at all of our expenses and our team planning, looking really carefully about where we want to invest. And making sure we're counting the cost of those investments because money is much less cheap than it was over the last few years. And we've just got to be really careful that we're we're investing in things that we think have a strong ability to pay back for the business. Um, and that we're, you know, not placing lots of risky bets um that could all come unstuck at the same time. So yeah, it's it's mostly uh, um lots of long planning meetings and and uh, budget calculations at the moment. I liked you made a comment fairly recently I heard on about timeframes. When it comes to investments, you're talking about the things that you want to have pay off now, mm -hmm. need to have pay off now, or listen at least in the coming quarters, yeah. and then things that need to have that you still need to do for mm -hmm. sustainability works both ways. It works both short term and long term, yeah. and the things you need to do for the longer term sustainability as well. I like that idea. You have this; it's a, it's a time framed perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Because the danger is. Um, you know, there's two dangers. The, the the danger that not many people fall into is that you invest everything in the long term and don't make it there. Um, but the, the the more relevant danger for most people in this context is that you put all of your effort, all of your eggs in the basket of short term. Um, and, you know, there's nothing for you to bridge to in the future. Um, and, you know, as the, the investment saying goes, there's two two great times to plant a tree 20 years ago or today. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a whole bunch of things that as leaders we need to be planting today, um, even if it's not going to bear fruit for the next few quarters, um, because that's how we're going to make sure we've got lift coming out of this economic climate into into hopefully some brighter years ahead. Yeah, I think that's that's where you have having a good exec function is that because uh, it's it's their role to keep that eye on the horizon and at the same time keep everybody else's heads down. Yeah, you know to have to have that uh, that duality there.
What What are you reading at the minute? What's What are you reading, listening to? Do you, yeah, yeah. Book fan? Yes. Um, often reading. My uh, most painful times when it comes to my own kind of sense of, of uh, learning and also reflection is when I realize that my ability to buy good books has outstripped my ability to spend time reading them. Um, at the moment, couple of recent ones would include um, The Score Takes Care of Itself. And there's also a book on IBM's turnaround called Who, Said, Who Says Elephants Can't Dance um, that I'm just starting now. Um, and then, yeah, in terms of podcasts, love listening to a whole range of entrepreneurship, business, startup podcasts. And then outside of outside of um, kind of work topics, I enjoy um, you know things like there's a, a podcast called No Such Thing as a Fish, which is um, you know the the popular UK quiz show QI. It's the researchers behind that, and it's kind of a fact based panel show. Um, or the Wolf and the Owl podcast with two comedians. So there's a few kind of lighter listening that I uh, I sometimes relax with in the evening as well. Wolf and the Owl is a great name. There is, in fact, there's a word you may have heard of it. Um, it's a Japanese word, of course, sunduko. I'm probably pronouncing that incorrectly as well. Tsunduko. It is referring to the piles of unread books that surround us. Sunduko. Yes. So I, I, I suffer from acute sunduko. <laughs> anyway, if you could, what would you like to thank young Andrew for doing? That's a great question. I, early on, I, whether it was just confidence instilled by, you know, having some great parents, um, whether it was some early experiences that paid off when I took a step out of the boat, um, I would thank myself for taking some, some pretty risky steps early on in my life, which paid off and gave me the confidence to keep doing that and doing it at a time when actually there wasn't that much to lose. I think it's super hard for people who are trying to, to start a business with, you know, a family to support, and they're trying to step out into, you know, self-employment or into con contracting or consulting or, yeah, found founding a startup. And fortunately, I got onto that train very, very early um, when I didn't have a whole bunch of things of, of commitments, a whole bunch of of dependence on me. Um, and so, yeah, I'm really grateful that that was something I was able to do, and that was something that I that I stepped up and did um, at university, before university, and soon after university. Yeah, I mean, with um, youngish children, I think I'm not entirely sure that even we should be sending them to university as it stands. You want to send, you want to give them several hundreds of thousands of our British pounds to go away and piss up against the nearest bar or to go and invest in starting their own business when they've got nothing to lose. That's yeah. the thing, nothing to lose, everything to gain, experience. Uh, absolutely. And I, and I love, you know, we've got, sons and daughters that are a similar age. Um, my daughter is 10 and I'm loving the conversations about mm. leadership and workplace and founding a business and economics. And, you know, and I think sometimes it's also just sharing some of the experiences we've had really candidly with them. You know, I'm, I, I had a conversation a couple of days ago with my daughter um, and we were talking about that phrase, opportunity dances with those that position themselves on the dance floor. And I was talking to her about some of these experiences with her about times of just trying to get out and try something and saying yes to an opportunity that had some risk of a bit of egg on my face and me looking a bit bit foolish because of failing, um, but turned out really well over time and and really trying to encourage her where, you know, in a, in a classroom environment at that age, 
the easiest thing is to keep your head down and not do anything that could be remotely embarrassing or or hurt your hurt your profile or, or kind of reputation. Um, and so, yeah, I think think encouraging our kids to have those kind of opportunities and those kind of experiences early on is just so key. Yeah, I'm trying trying to get them to develop a sense of lack of embarrassment. And then I was I was even I was trying to convince her about the number of people that I re- remember from my class when I was 10. Yes. <laughs> it's precisely zero. You know, I mean, honest to God, they could come and mug me and I don't think I would remember. I'm so sorry if you're listening, anybody. I really am. I doubt you're there. But mm-hmm. really, it's uh, anyway. uh, good for us. That's why I say let's, let, us, let us aim to raise powerful young women and smart wee boys too. Andrew, as we wrap up, what are your coordinates? How can people find you? I'm on LinkedIn, Andrew Davies at Paddle, um, on Twitter, and Jay Davies. And yeah, often in London at our office in Shoreditch. Um, we've got a bit of space there for SaaS businesses that are in the community who want to spend some time meeting or having coffees um, if anyone wants to, uh, to try and get some FaceTime when they're in London. Marvellous. Andrew Davies, thank you very much indeed for joining me. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate it. That's a wrap. Thank you for joining me today. Your homework is to leave your five-star review and please, any comments you have, you really help me to improve every day. And it also helps people to discover me online. You should check out practical-leadership.academy because you want to help your new managers succeed with hybrid or remote working. (laughs) 